Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church Creekside. If you weren't here last week, then I will reintroduce myself. My name is Kyle, and um, a little bit about me. I graduated graduated from A and M in 2013. All right. Are you the same guys from last week? Because if so, we should hang out. It's exclusive, by the way, just the 2013 people. (laughs) So right after I graduated in 2013, I came on staff with Grace as a intern or as a fellow, as they now call it, and was a fellow for a couple of years and then moved on staff full time in the outreach department. And have since, as of last summer, my wife, Chamilla Panilla, and I, and I forgot to put a picture up of her. She's amazing and beautiful, and she's from Sri Lanka. That's all you got to know. So my wonderful wife, Chamilla, and I, she and I moved overseas to Greece uh, last September, and we got back about two weeks ago. So we're, you know, we're still getting used to the loopiness. I don't know. People say I should be used to it now, but I'm not. And on, we are here getting our visas renewed, saying hi to friends, family, and then we'll leave again in September. So exciting stuff, excited to be with you. Um, Now, I want you to think back with me. If you're over the age of 18 in the room, think about when you turned 18. If you were anything like me, something clicked inside of your head, you realized that you are unbreakable, untouchable, immortal, Like, you can live forever. You can do anything you want. And this was my conclusion about myself when I turned 18. I thought, you know, I can live irresponsible. It's not a big deal, which obviously is, you know, ludicrous. And I remember, so I'm from Brenham. Brenham is about 45 minutes down the road. And uh, Brenham, we created Bluebell and Listeria, so we're famous. Uh, Brenham, Texas. And uh, it's a country town, and I don't want to insult people who consider themselves country I am the furthest thing from country. So when I say I'm from a country town, it would be an insult to you to say I am a country boy because I I don't know. I've never ridden a horse or shot a... Maybe I'm stereotyping. I don't know. So anyways, in Brenham, we decided, especially when I was in high school, when I was 18, a couple months into it, we decided for some reason, and I don't know why, but we were like, we should go shoot skunks. And uh, I remember thinking like, why skunks? You know, Maybe I just thought squirrels were cute and I didn't want to hurt them, and I I don't know. At this point, I had never shot a gun, and so me and six of my friends, we decide to go to this backcountry road at midnight, and uh, we start looking for skunks, which are black at midnight. Um, All that to say is my friend Greg, come on, Greg, Greg tried to shoot the skunks, he never got the skunks, and uh, about an hour into it, we were like, this is dumb, let's just go home. So we're driving home. And there's four of us in the bed of the truck. We see a car behind us, and we're like, hey, let's all just get down so we don't freak out the person at one in the morning. And then, of course, we see the blue and red lights on the back of the pickup. The cop comes out of the car. He tells everyone to put their hands up. And you can imagine his perspective when he sees, like, four guys stand in the bed of the truck with two guns. And so next thing he says, he says freeze and all the cool cop stuff. It's like we're in a movie. And he goes back into his car. And the next thing we know, about 30 minutes later, we have three other cop cars show up and a game warden. Um, So things are looking pretty bleak. So what we're doing is they start to um, talk to us one-on-one. They start to interview us and we start talking to them. And I am freaking out. Like I'm you know, Southern boy, Christian school Kyle about to get arrested. And I'm like, oh, what's he doing in jail? Um, And so I'm freaking out. I see one of my friends get handcuffed and put into the car. Come on, Greg. And uh, I'm realizing I'm next. But what happens is eventually after a long, long night, uh, the cop says, okay, you know, this is a felony. Turns out you can't shoot 
a gun on the back of a truck. Didn't know that. Know that now. Um, again, 18. Foolish. Uh, if you're 18 in the room, I'm sure you're better than I was. I'm not calling you foolish. Don't worry. Um, and so, so turns out you can get like a huge fine and jail time. Didn't know that. So he's like, you know, I could arrest you boys. And his awesome movie-like action figure cop who's like, I'm going to let you boys go. And we're like, are you serious? So we just go home and the rest is history. So now I want you to notice a sequence of events in that story. We are being boneheads. The cop shows up. The cop pronounces us innocent. The cop leaves and our actions change. Now, similarly in the Christian life, we can see and view the Christian life as three sequences. God appears. God forgives. God sends. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at the Christian life, and I want to step back, and I want to look at it from a broad perspective. Because quite frankly, I mean, you can do a whole sermon over God appearing. You could do a whole sermon on God forgiving and a whole sermon on God sending. Um, But this morning for our time, I want to step back and look at the picture as a whole. Look at these three sequences as a whole. Because what these three sequences will do, they will answer three questions to us. They will answer, who is God? That it's a little, there we go. God appears, God forgives, God sins. They're going to answer the questions, who is God? What is our response to God? And what should we expect? And so we're going to do this by looking at the book of Isaiah, looking at the character of Isaiah. So go ahead and turn to chapter six. That's where we'll be for the majority of our time. And Isaiah, he was a prophet, a major prophet as we call them. And Isaiah, interestingly, his upbringing was different than most prophets. That being, most prophets came from a lowly position. However, for Isaiah, he was a statesman. He had access to the royal courts. He was respected by those in high authority, including kings. In fact, God used Isaiah to speak to four generations of different kings. But then Isaiah and his life, we also come to this prophet and we see a man who willingly, gladly endured isolation and pain and persecution and imprisonment. And so the question I want to ask ourselves this morning is why? What did Isaiah know that would cause him to joyfully endure all those things and willingly sacrifice everything for the glory of God? Well, it's found in these three sequences that we'll look at through the lens and illustration of Isaiah 6. So sequence number one, God appears. We answer the question, who is God? Let's start in verse one. In the year of King Uzziah's death. Okay, let's stop there. So the first point is this, who is God? God is sovereign. So 2 Chronicles 26 verse verse four tells us that Uzziah had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So Uzziah, he was one of the few righteous kings in Judah's history. He was righteous for most of his life. He reigned for, or he became king at 16, died at 68, and reigned at a total of 52 years. You know, you can add up the math, or you can just follow me blindly. And Isaiah, Uzziah, he, uh, he was a good king. The people loved Uzziah, and Uzziah loved the people. Uzziah strengthened Jerusalem. He took down opposing armies. He restored military power to the strongest it's been since the days of Solomon. He was an expert administrator. He was a tremendous strategist. There hadn't been a king like Uzziah since the reign of Solomon. Unfortunately for Uzziah, his reign ends on a tragic note. Uzziah became very wealthy and he became very powerful. And so at the end of Uzziah's life, he walked into the temple of God arrogantly 
and he tried to claim for himself the rights that were only given to the priests. And so the story of Uzziah ends up, he breaks out immediately in leprosy and dies alone in solitude. Now, this is very tragic for the people of Judah because Assyria, a mighty nation in the West, now sets its sights on Judah. Assyria is in the process of taking over the northern kingdom of Israel. And so now the southern kingdom of Israel is vulnerable. And so the, the, the Judeans, they're, they're freaking out. They're panicking. They're mourning the loss of this good king. They grow desperate. And it's in this time, as scripture tells us here, that Isaiah walks into the temple. Many believe to be mourning the death of the good king Uzziah. And it's in this moment of sorrow that Isaiah encounters God. Now, you can see God's sovereignty mapped out here. You see, God knew that Uzziah would die. He knew that Assyria would soon come and take over Judah. And he knew because of all of this, Isaiah would walk into the temple and encounter him. And this is where Isaiah would be made a spokesman of the Lord. God was sovereign over all of it. So Isaiah continues and he writes, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So suddenly, the, suddenly the veil of heaven is peeled back for a moment and man encounters God. Isaiah says, I see the Lord lifted high. Thus God is superior in power. He is superior in authority. He is superior in rule over every nation, over every tribe, and over every tongue. He then writes, and his train filled the temple. So God has this robe, and he has this train. And I'll be honest to you, I had next to no idea what a train was. Um, in fact, I, I showed this to a friend, and I told this friend I didn't know. And she was like, are you going to say that just because it's funny? And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, I actually didn't know what the train of the robe was. But it turns out, it's like the flowing end of a dress or the robe. It's the part that flows out and it's like fluffed up. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you know it takes like 30 minutes just to get the train of the dress looking right for the photos. But I remember seeing Chamilla, my wife, my bride. I remember seeing her in that dress and seeing the train of her robe flow outward. And I just remember thinking, everyone who's coming tonight is here for her. They're all here for her, not me, not this scrub. They are all here to see her. And in the same way, um, Isaiah, he describes how this train fills the temple and it goes out the door and out the windows. And I don't know if temples actually have windows. Probably should have researched that before I said it. But it's just everywhere. And what I think is interesting is he starts to describe the things surrounding God. He starts to describe the robe, the color of the robe, and soon we'll see he starts to describe these angelic beings surrounding God. And I thought that was weird at first. Like when I read that, I, said, I thought to myself, like, why is he describing the robe? Why, why isn't he describing the face of God? Well, then I read Exodus chapter 24, verse 10. It says, And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So think about this for a second. Think, see the absurdity in this. Look at how this is kind of strange. You encounter God. Let's say you encounter God and someone asks you, I heard you encountered God. How was that experience? And you say, it was incredible. The floor was blue. And you're like, well, that kind of sounds strange. 
Like, why wouldn't you describe the face of God? And it hit me. I think the reason why we wouldn't describe the face of God is because if we were to encounter him, we would be bowed so low to the ground that the things we could describe around us are the color of his robe and the color of his pavement. You see what Isaiah is illustrating here. What he's saying is there's a sense of reverence. He talks about the train of the robe because he's bowing down to a, to a perfect God. We would instantaneously and intuitively bow. We couldn't look at his face and witness the full force of his glory. It's interesting when we read scripture, we actually discover that every time we see God manifested on earth, people have been shielding their eyes from his presence. Moses, for example, he had already heard the voice of God in a burning bush. He had seen God do miracles in Egypt. He had seen God split open a sea. He had seen God throw down a pillar of fire, and yet he craved more. He craved the ultimate spiritual experience to see God face to face. And so in Exodus chapter 33, he asked God, let me see your face. Show me your glory. The Lord responds to him saying, no man can see my face for no man would live. And so what God tells Moses to do, he says, hey, go by that near rock and I'm going to walk past you. And as I walk past, you can see the back. And so Moses sees the back of God. Moses returns to the Israelites and the Israelites are all freaking out because Moses is literally glowing and not in a like sweet way where you're like, oh, you look so cute. You're glowing. But in what in the world, why is he glowing type of way? You know, people are panicking and I'm realizing they're panicking because they're seeing merely a reflection of the glory of God's back. Like they're not even seeing God face to face. They're seeing a reflection of God. God is glorious and we could not live to stand before his glory. We could not see his face and live. Moses then has to put on a turban just so people can interact with him. But you know what really excites me? Is that one day we will be allowed to see what Moses and Isaiah were denied. We will see God face to face in the full force of his glory. 1 John chapter 3, 2 tells us, We are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will see God unlike Moses and Isaiah saw him in full glory. You ever try to describe something that's indescribable? You know, like, think about it. I asked my wife, Jamila, I said, just think of something that's hard to describe. And she started to describe a sunset and the colors and how it's orange at first, but then it turns a little pink. But then she just said what I feel like everyone believes is you just had to be there. You know, you just had to sit there and watch the sunset. Look, I'm trying to describe it to you now, and I just can't because you had to be there. And I think of an experience with God that I personally have, and I realize that it's just so personal, so all-encompassing that it's hard to describe it. Have you ever tried to describe the indescribable to those who have never experienced the indescribable? So think of it this way. Have you ever sat alone? Have you ever sat alone in your room and met with God? Have you ever sat under the stars and met with God? Have you ever in nature met with God and your pain met with God and you knew he was there and you felt his presence? 
It's so hard to describe that feeling, and yet you so bad want to describe it. It's so hard to describe that feeling, and yet you so bad want others to know the feeling that you had when you interacted with the glorious God. One day, we won't have to describe this moment. We will see him face to face. God is glorious. Isaiah moves on, and he writes, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So seraphim literally means burning ones. And so these angels, they're literally on fire. They're ablaze. And during, during this time, they're worshiping God. They surround the throne of our king and they praise our Lord. It's interesting. Seraphim never show up again in scripture under this name. When one of these angelic beings spoke, the temple shook, smoke rose in the air. And what's funny is I feel like at times in pop culture, especially when we talk about angels, we think of like, you ever know what those precious moment things were? Like those little baby angels? Or we think of cute little pudgy toddler angels and they're shooting arrows. I don't know. Maybe that's Cupid. I don't know. Um, But then I think, no, when these angels spoke, the ground shook. They were on fire. I I was trying to find a picture of these guys, and I just couldn't find one to do it justice. And so these guys, I mean, when they spoke, smoke entered. It didn't come out of the mouth out of like a little pudgy angel. These beings were terrifying, yet these creatures, these incredible, terrifying, powerful angels, these spiritual beings in all their greatness, even they refused to show their eyes to the face of the Lord. Even they refused to touch the ground because the Lord has touched, because the Lord has touched the ground. You see these angels, they are revering him day and night. These angels worship him. They were worshiping him when we were worshiping him this morning and they will worship him when we finish, conclude this morning, worshiping him in song. And so what I want to do is I want to illustrate the power of God through these angelic beings by looking at Isaiah chapter 36. So the scene in chapter 36 is set about 20 years after this encounter with God in the temple. So Isaiah encounters God, and 20 years later, we have King Hezekiah ruling over Judah. And King Hezekiah was arguably the most righteous king in all of Judah's history. And yet in this time, Assyria has already conquered over the northern kingdom of Israel. Now they're in the southern kingdom of Judah. They're completely surrounding this kingdom. They're surrounding Jerusalem, the last hope of defense for Judah. Things are looking bleak, and Scripture tells us that there was 185,000 Assyrian warriors ready to take down Judah. Things are looking pretty hopeless here. And yet, though there were 185,000 Assyrians about to take down Judah, King Hezekiah steps out and he tells the people of Judah, he says, have faith in the God of Israel. Have faith that our God will come through, that he has not forgotten us. Hezekiah, despite all odds, has faith in the power of God. And so what happens next, starting in verse 18, this representative of Assyria, he steps out and he responds to Hezekiah and he says, beware that King Hezekiah does not mislead you saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his people from the hand of Assyria? Where were the gods of Hamath or Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharnam? 
Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all these gods of these lands have delivered their people and their land from my hand that the Lord your God would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? You know what this guy is saying? He's saying, no other God has stopped me. What makes, your think, what makes you think your God will be any different? And Isaiah, who I'm sure remembers this experience in the temple, he gets on this trash talk with the Assyrian representative And God, using him as a spokesman, he uh, responds in one of the greatest, I believe, rebuttals in all of Scripture. He says, starting in chapter 37, verse 23, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your servants you have reproached the Lord. Verse 26, Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Verse 28. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by which the way you came. Finally, verse 35, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's. Instantly, after Isaiah says this to the Assyrian representative, an angel comes down and strikes dead 185,000 Assyrian warriors, which is a snap of his finger. Instantly, they die. The only remaining survivor is the king. And the king of Assyria, he says, yeah, I'm out. He flees over to Nineveh, worship fake gods, and then he's killed by his sons. So that's a serious story. But do you see the power of God here? With just one word, he sends an angel and strikes dead 155,000 soldiers. This is who the seraphim are praising this powerful, almighty God. Isaiah moves on, verse 3. He says, And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. So God appears to Isaiah, and we see that God is sovereign, he is glorious, he is powerful, and we see that he is holy. So the seraphim, they express who they see before them, and the word that comes out is holy. Now, there is significance in this repetition of the word holy. In Hebrew literature, it's found in poetry especially, this form of repetition is a form of crucial emphasis. So, for example, Jesus, when he would say, truly, truly, I say to you, this meant that Jesus was about to say something of crucial importance. And so when the seraphim cry out, holy, 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 worshiping God, what they are essentially saying, this holy to the third degree, is raising this attribute of God to the most important and the most significant emphasis. And what's really interesting here is nowhere else found in Scripture is an attribute of God risen to the third degree. So nowhere in Scripture do we find God love, 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 or mercy, 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 or powerful, 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 we find that this is the only time that he is considered holy, 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 an attribute of God risen to the third degree. We see this also again in Revelation. So a way I could illustrate this is when I think of Chamilla, I think of the way I describe her, 
her personality, her humor, her faith, my attraction to her. Like I could go on and on about describing her and no other person on the planet makes me describe her or no other person on the planet I can describe like I can describe like her. There's no one else I can describe in the way that I can describe her. And in the same way, these seraphim, how they describe our God, there is no other entity, entity, no other being that these seraphim could possibly declare as holy, 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 aside from our God. To be considered holy means to be completely without error, to be completely set apart. There is nothing impure. There is nothing wrong with him. Everything in God is right. He is perfect. Holiness requires separation from everything that is not holy. So he is set apart from us and he is set apart from all creation. We say things and hear things like holy nations, holy day, holy scripture, holy women, holy men, holy faith. But what happens when we apply this word to God? Well, Moses asks God when he hears him for the first time, he says, what should I tell them is your name? And God responds with, tell them I am who I am. I am not dependent on anyone. I am not dependent on anything. Everything is dependent on me. I am who I am. I am holy God. I am separate. Think about it. A diamond that is rare will increase in value. And God is exclusively the only holy one. Therefore, his value is completely infinite. So the most important value existing is not us, It's not our relationships, it's not our wealth, it's not our job. As much as I love my wife and she loves me, it's not Chamilla to me, and it's not me to Chamilla. The most important value of life is our holy God. And I think one of the biggest problems with our world and amongst Christians today is our ability to acknowledge that. You see, when we don't acknowledge God's value as holy, as the ultimate value, as completely holy, then our work for him becomes in vain and it becomes about us. Or perhaps it's the very reason we don't desire to do work on his behalf at all. He is holy and his, holy and his holiness inspires us to move into action. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 3 says, I will show myself holy. That says five. Um, ah, Sorry. Okay, I don't have it. So Leviticus Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3 says, I will show myself holy. I will be glorified. You see, the glory of God is the radiance of his holiness. When God shows himself holy, he is glorified. And all creation is a continual explosion of his glory. The grass that grows in the ground and the clouds in the air, they do all that they do to glorify him. By his great power and strength, 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, all seen, more than 100 billion stars, all seen in our telescopes alone, all of these cry out the glory of God. And God, he calls them out one by one, name by name. Not one speck of dust on earth does what it does because of the sovereign will and the sovereign bidding of God. All creation exposes the glory of God and all creation worships him. So looking at these attributes, his sovereignty, his glory, his power, and his holiness, I get stuck right there and I ask myself, do we realize who we just prayed to? Like we just, we just talked to this God. 
Like we just had a personal conversation with this God. We just worshiped and sang to this God. This, this verse, this chapter changes the way we pray. I will tell you, my, when I prayed beforehand was significantly different than how I prayed after I studied Isaiah chapter 6 because I realized and recognized who I just prayed to. And I would challenge you this morning before we conclude with our last song that we would think about this. We will think about God as sovereign, glorious, powerful, and holy before we sing. So now the question is, how do we respond to a sovereign, glorious, powerful, and holy God? Well, the next sequence of events is God forgives. So God appears and he now forgives. So what is our response to a holy God? It's repentance. So Isaiah writes in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah walks in, and his response isn't, Wow, this is, this is awesome. It's woe is me. It's terror. He is afraid. In fact, some translations, it says, I am undone. It's interesting throughout the whole book of Isaiah and throughout, throughout all the prophets, these prophets, they say, woe is you upon a people group or a nation. And this declaration of woe, what this did was um, it prophesied impending destruction and judgment on this people group. And so when Isaiah, when he says, woe is me, what he's essentially saying is all that judgment, all that destruction I prophesied on this people group, I now declare it on myself. Immediately upon seeing God, Isaiah is struck by the reality of his own sinfulness because he recognizes the state of his own condition. Isaiah realizes the contrast between him and God is so great that he is in total despair. Like, I'm about to die. Think if you saw this. Like, think if you walked into the temple. Um, or I guess think if you walked into Creekside, because we don't, you know, we're not in a temple. Think if you walked into Creekside and you saw this God. And you saw these blazing angels worshiping him and smoke rising in the air and the ground shaking. What would you do? I could tell you my first reaction would be to hide. We'd look for a place to hide because we'd think, I'm about to die. I am in ruin. I'm dead. There's no way I live past this. And so we would desperately find a place to hide. And so Isaiah, he just assumes, I'm dead. And I think what can happen is we can compare ourselves to each other and we can think, you know, I'm really not that bad. You know, we can compare ourselves to pop culture and we can think, compared to them, I'm really not that bad. We could look at Isaiah and even think Isaiah is exaggerating a little bit. Like, Isaiah is one of the good ones. You know, he's one who dedicate his life to the Lord, like, unlike any other. So aren't you exaggerating a little bit, Isaiah? But we realize when Isaiah is exposed to a holy God, as soon as Isaiah measures up his own understanding of sin compared to a holy God, we realize that his standard just doesn't match up and he is in ruin. At this moment in Isaiah chapter 6 is where I'm reminded of the gravity of our sin. No matter how small we perceive our sin to be, put before an infinitely holy God, it is all offensive, it is transgressive, and we see the weight of what we perceive as small. 
You see, when we put our own understanding and standard of sin next to an infinitely holy God, we understand what Isaiah understood, that we're unclean, that the gravity of sin is determined by the one whom we have sinned against, and we have all sinned against God. When we understand who God is, we reach the same conclusion that Isaiah reached, that we are unclean before a holy God. So things look pretty bleak for Isaiah. But however, immediately in the next verse, God steps in. Isaiah writes in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So the Lord immediately steps in. He commands a seraphim to grab a coal and touch the lips of Isaiah. And what this represents is an act of divine cleansing. Isaiah, what he experienced here was mercy. God tells Isaiah through this act that Isaiah has been made clean. God immediately restores this undone, ruined, broken man. And this brief pain of burning flesh, it brought on an internal healing. And notice here, Isaiah didn't have to do anything to earn it. You know, Isaiah didn't work or do anything to appease God. God just steps in and he offers Isaiah mercy. Now, we all have a sense of right and wrong. We all, for the most part, I assume, believe that wrong should be punished. So how does God, holy, just, and right, how does he look at us and he declare us innocent? Well, Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 4, tells us, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us, of us all to fall on him. How does God declare us innocent? It is through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what this is prophesying to. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 tells us that Jesus will be pierced, he will be crushed, he will be scourged, and all of our iniquity, all of our sin will be cast down on him, and he will take the penalty of it all. This is how we can experience relationship with God. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To appreciate the forgiveness we've been given, we must remember the depravity from which we have been drawn. Though our sin is pervasive, though we deserve judgment, Jesus took on the full force of our sin and our penalty. And now, as Colossians 1 verse 13 tells us, he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and he has transferred us into his kingdom. So when God takes away sin, he invades our life and we are free to be in relationship with him. And so now when we walk into the room and we see God, we don't need to hide because God doesn't see a sinful person before him. He sees Christ's righteousness. You see, this is how we can have relationship with God. We don't need to hide it anymore. 
Because if we're in relationship with Jesus, he sees Jesus' righteousness. We are made clean. And my hope for you this morning is if you have not come into a relationship with Jesus, that you would know that you are loved by him and that you would be made clean through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. So having been forgiven, um, he wants to use us as broken people, as people who are sinners, who are made clean. He wants to use us to make his name known. To make his name known. So how do we respond to a sovereign, powerful, glorious, and holy God? It's with mission. And then Isaiah writes in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go before us? Then I answered, Here am I, Lord, send me. So imagine Isaiah's shock. Isaiah comes before the Lord. He concludes that I'm going to die. Then the Lord forgives him, and then he wants to use him? Isaiah must be thinking here, we can assume, after what you just did for me, after I thought I was dead, after I thought my life was over, and then you forgive me, you offer me mercy? How could I not say no? Here I am, Lord, send me. In R.C. Sproul, he writes in his book, The Holiness of God, that there is a pattern here, a pattern repeated in history. God appears, people quake in, sh- people quake in terror, God forgives and heals, God sins. From brokenness to mission is the human experience. You see, God took this shattered, broken man, man in Isaiah, and he made him a spokesman. And God wants to do the same for us. He wants to make us spokesmen. He wants us to reveal the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him. He wants us to make disciples. You see, when I have understood God's forgiveness, I am compelled to abandon my old life, my selfishness, my pride, my comfort, and even my safety, and conclude that here am I, Lord, send me. So the last sequence here is God sends. So God appears, God forgave, and now he sins. And this is where we're going to end because I spoke on this last week. But we read here in chapter 6, 9 through 13, he said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Then I, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. What should we expect? We should expect rejection. My fear to you this morning is that you would walk out and you would live your life for the glory of God and you would be rejected by others, and then you would stop because you are doing something wrong. Well, let me tell you, rejection does not mean you are failing. We see this, and me and my wife, we see this while we live, live in Greece. We get rejected all the time. And I remember particularly one time my teammate Hayden and I, we were sitting with a guy. We explained how we had been adopted through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the guy's response was, I'd rather be an orphan. And so the reality is sometimes we don't see a lot of fruit. Reality is sometimes we don't see revival. And I'm not saying you won't. So many of us in the room, I believe probably most all of us will see some fruit at times. I believe some of us will have revival. I think some of us will start mission groups and nonprofits that make 
that have hundreds to thousands come to know Jesus. And so I'm not discounting that. I think that happens. But I want us to be ready when we don't see that. The reality is, are we okay with being faithful and not seeing revival? Are we okay with just going out because God calls us to make disciples and to make Jesus known? And so what should we expect despite the rejection? We should expect God with us. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You, say, you see, when we say, send me, we experience God in ways that we never have before. This is why I can live overseas in Greece and be rejected because I know who goes before me, because I know who leads me. And though it's hard at times, and though it can get tiring to not see fruit, I'm okay. I'm okay because of who is with me. And so for you this morning, is it okay for you to go out, you try to make disciples, you live faithfully to make Jesus known, and you see little fruit, but are you okay just because you know who goes before you? you know that Jesus will show up and you know that you'll experience a dependency on him in ways that you have never seen before. I believe the two hours in this room is good. I believe it's even obedient to be in here and to be with community, to study scripture and worship with one another. I think we experience God in here. I believe that. But I also believe we experience God in incredible ways out there when we're making disciples, when we're spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in your workplace, in your community, in your homes, and in your schools. It's out there that we experience God in new and incredible ways. And so I would challenge you. I want you to see the movement of Jesus. Then go out and live life on mission because that's where he's hanging out. So in light of all of this, God appears God forgives, God sins. Ask yourself where you are in this sequence. Have you recognized God as sovereign, as glorious, as powerful, and as holy? Have you understood the weight of your sin, but the, the freedom of forgiveness? Have you answered to him, here am I, send me? Where are you on this sequence? Because I believe Isaiah demonstrates what experience with God looks like. And myself and Grace Bible Church, we want you to experience God. We want you to experience and have a relationship with God made possible through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what's going to happen now is the band is going to come up and we're going to worship God in song one more time this morning. And I want us to remember these truths. I want us to remember and reflect perhaps where you are in your sequence with God. Perhaps you are sitting in the room and you're a believer and yet you have not experienced the freedom and weight from a sin struggle. Perhaps you're in the room and you have not yet said, here am I, Lord, send me. Or perhaps you're in the room and you have not yet experienced God because you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus. And perhaps this morning is the morning that you come to know him as your savior. And so this morning, let's reflect and let's worship this glorious and holy and powerful God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that despite our sin, that despite before you we are separate, 
that you are set apart from us. God, we thank you that you provided a way through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to be known by us. That we are known by you, that you know us by name, that you love us, that you have provided a way for us to be in relationship with you. And so God, as we praise you this morning, I pray that we would remember that you are holy, that you are glorious, that you are powerful, and that you are sovereign. And because of that, we would have the response of worship, that we would have a response of mission. God, that we would not live our life without living it for the glory of Jesus. So Father, would you move in this room? Yes, but would you move in this room and out the doors and into our everyday life where we can make you known, where we can remember these truths? Father, we want to feel your presence. We so desperately want to have this experience with you that you appear, that you forgive, and that you send. And so, Lord, what else could we say but send us? After what you did for us, after, that, after we were sinners before you, and after you saved us, what else could we do than say yes to your calling?